0: Be a pro with AC Pro. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Bustin' Loose Baseball, welcome in. I'm Grant Paulson, producer Darius Dameron, making everything sound good. Danny Rouye is not with us today. He is in Austin, Texas, on travel. Uh, I'm going to say it's for business, but no one really knows. It's an undisclosed location. He's out and about in Austin, Texas. But we've got some Nats baseball to banter about now, don't we? I'm actually recording this pod while they are in action in Atlanta right now. Series finale against the Braves. They're trailing early 2 to nothing in this ballgame. When this game ends... There will be 13 games left this season for the Nationals, and then this season will end mercifully. (laughs) We are kind of awaiting the finish line here on the horizon for the Nats. So they play this game today on Wednesday. They're off Thursday. Then they're at Miami Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then they come home for a homestand, the final of the year, to host the Braves and the Phillies, who... By the way, I think they've only been at Nats Park once. It was over that long Zimmerman uh, celebration weekend. Kind of an oddity in the schedule in that regard. And then uh, the Nats at the Mets for the final three games of the year. The season will end on October 5th. As everybody knows, not only will there be no playoff baseball, but the question is, will the Nationals finish with the worst record in the sport right now? They are 51 and 97, which means they are four games worse than Pittsburgh, as I like to say. Four games up on the Pirates for the back end spot in the National League. Uh, their stiffest competition to have the worst record, probably the Oakland A's, who were just at Nats Park not long ago. They're 54 and 94. They are three games worse than uh, better than the Nationals in the standings, but three games worse as far as I'm concerned. And if I'm confusing you, it's because I want to have the worst record at this point. We've suffered through this horrendous season, this 345 winning percentage, seeing them 30 games off the place from even wild card contention. The best thing that can happen now is that they can secure the best draft pick possible. And as we talked about on the last pod, there is now going to be a draft lottery, so they're no longer guaranteed the number one overall pick, which is annoying and and is not what I'd prefer. I, I like the idea of where you finish dictating, where you draft, a la the National Football League. But there was enough, I think, fan disappointment and anger and some front offices and certainly a lot of players that didn't like how many teams were no longer trying to win and spending at the major league level and building teams to compete this season. You know, in any given year, we got to a point where a third of the sport kind of went into the campaign, not just without a chance to win a World Series, but actively efforting essentially, with the roster they were building, to gain draft position. And I think baseball didn't like that for obvious reasons. Uh, You want more teams vying for wins now, trying to win in the moment. And so that's why the draft lottery has been enacted to effectively try to end what is called tanking, although as we talked about on this podcast, I think it's just called building. I'm a Mike Elias guy. I was in Houston when he was working under Luno with the Astros. Good buddy of mine, Kevin Goldstein, in that front office at one point in time. He's now in Minnesota with the Twins, but... You know, I believe in uh, drafting and developing and spending money below the big leagues. And we saw it with the Nationals years ago. I believe in um, establishing a really good system with really strong prospects as a foundation. And those guys aren't all going to hit. And and people love to take shots at prospects that don't hit and talk about how they're not sure things. And that's very true. Uh, But when you get blue chippers in the top 10 in the draft, more often than not, You know, the batting average on those guys becoming good big leaguers is pretty high. That's where you draft Harper at one, Strasburg at one, Rendon at six, right? Some of the huge stars and impact players in this game. You know, for the Astros, it was Correa in the top uh, pick in the draft. It was Springer in the top ten. They, For years, you know, Bregman in the top five picked up high, and, and you got a hit. I mean that that goes without saying, right? If if you don't hit on those picks then it doesn't matter. And for a long long time the Nationals have not hit on their first round draft picks. But it's a lot easier to hit when you're drafting at the top of the board, you know, when you take Elijah Green as an example in the top 5, even though he was probably one of the the riskier uh picks this in terms of boomer bust, you got a much higher ceiling better chance at a star generally than when you're picking someone outside of the top 20 and you just look at you know this trade they made for Juan Soto going out to San Diego for all the prospects they got back that everyone loves so much and where those guys got drafted. I mean, Robert Hassel was a top 10 pick and uh, CJ Abrams was the sixth pick in the draft. And James Wood fell in the draft. He was kind of a top 10 talent. If the draft was redone, he'd be a top five pick, but you know, he went outside of the first round based on some concerns about his swing and, some questions about him, but for the most part, Mackenzie Gore, third overall pick. like the, the the great prospects in the game, as evidenced by that trade, are drafted really, really high. Speaking of the Soto deal really quickly, man, do I feel for Juan. I mean, he's getting beat up pretty good nationally. Finally got a home run, and here recently, he's trying to turn the tide, it looks like. He's hitting about 292 over his last seven games with seven batted in, but he was entering the week like three for 46, I think it was. Uh, at the plate, I mean, a struggle the like switch we just hadn't really seen. He's hitting two thirty one with just a seven sixty five OPS in San Diego and only four homers in about forty games. I mean, it has really been a struggle. Uh, Twenty-three years old for Soto, always playing with that smile on his face. He hasn't had nearly as much fun. He's been getting booed a little bit by Padres fans as well. Just a reminder that you know the grass is not always greener, and that's not to say that he forced a trade or anything like that, but. Remember, he was not going to resign here, and the reason that the Nats traded him was that they decided and came to the realization that, whether it was him or Scott Boris or both, they weren't going to kind of play ball on a contract, so the best time to trade Juan Soto is never, and the second best time is right now, and they moved him, and if you're Soto, that means learning a new ballpark, and learning a new organization, and learning new teammates, and... You know, you're in the same league, but mastering the video study and everything he's got to do on the pitchers in that division and just getting used to a bunch of things you haven't had to think about for several years in one organization. You know, the the feel of that batter's box and, and you know, that uh, – prep you know that you're doing in in the uh, stadium in the bowels of the stadium you know they're batting cages and it's different it's like transferring schools or having a new job you know what I mean where do I go get my pencils where do I uh where's my cabinet for my you know uh paper for my computer like they just it's not always easy man and it hasn't gone that well for him in San Diego I'll be fascinated to see next year what happens because, you know, when they acquired him, my thought was that the Padres would probably have to move him at some point to try to recoup some of what they gave up in their system because he's also not resigning with them ahead of going to market, I wouldn't think, uh, barring something crazy happening. I guess he could have, you know, an epiphany now going into the offseason and say that the contract's affecting him and tell Boris to get a deal done. But my guess is that he's still headed to free agency, uh, now two full seasons from now, start of next year, and, and if that's the case, then the Padres might have to move him at the deadline next year, depending on you know where they're at in the standings, just to try to rebuild the system that is kind of now diminished and depleted. Uh, but they're just fighting and scratching and clawing to try to keep a wild card spot right now. Uh, they are three and a half games, I guess four games up on Milwaukee uh, at this point, as. Uh, A comfortable playoff team. They're one and a half up on Philly, staying out of what is kind of that last wild card spot, which is a big deal. And the Padres, as Soto's gotten going here, have won four in a row and six of ten. And they've gained three games on Milwaukee over the last three days, which is huge, right? Because they were basically a game up from being on the outside looking in when they hit this winning streak. And meanwhile, the, the Phillies have fallen off completely as well. They've lost five in a row. And so that you're talking about going from basically, I think it was two and a half up on the Padres to now being one and a half back on San Diego just over the last four games that uh, the Padres have played. So uh, they're in much better shape, and I think those fans maybe will breathe a little easier and take it a little easier on Soto if they can punch their ticket to the playoffs with him swinging a, a decent bat uh, the rest of the way. I wanted to mention, though, I looked this up. So a lot is made about... You know, how this year was a tough season for Nats fans, which is so true. But if you notice the narrative sometimes, it's almost like this was the first year that this team has committed fully to a rebuild. And I just think that's so wrong and flawed, right? If, if you're one of us here who's in D.C. and watches every game and lives and dies with this team and goes to Nats Park a ton, you know, I'll probably end up having hit 35 or so games by the end of the season. Um, That's just not correct, right? I mean, this team has been bad now for three years. And I I guess where this reared its head most was I was talking to someone The other day, who's a smart baseball person in in baseball, and they said, yeah, the Nats, they're going to be struggling, it looks like, for the next couple of years as they build that thing up. You know, is that fan base going to be patient? I know this was kind of the first year where they've had to go through this team tanking, you know, or whatever word they used. And that's just not true. That is what people think. But remember, they won the World Series in 2019. Now, they didn't plan to be bad in 2020, but they were terrible in 2020. That was a last-place type team that season that just in that 60-game shortened year wasn't really competitive. 2021 last year, they were also bad. They lost almost 100 games. They sold off all their best players and all the players that weren't bolted down, basically. Anyone who didn't have a contract at the end of the season pending free agent, you were gone. Remember, they made, I think it was like, Um, Eight trades and and brought back, I think, 13 players and gave up a bunch of veterans, your Josh Harrison and Jan Gomes types and your Scherzer and and, uh, Trey Turner trade. I mean, all those moves were last year at the deadline as part of what was a really bad year. And then you have this year. So this is the third season now as a fan base. You've dealt with this largely. And if you want to say 2020 was different because they had still the stars that you wanted to go watch, right? You still had other than Rendon, you know. But Scherzer was there, and Strasburg, and and uh, Trey Turner, and Juan Soto. Okay, that's fine. But beyond that, like just because 2021, you had some of your favorite players still. I mean, it's been bad baseball. So I looked this up. If you go back to the start of the 2020 season, so April 1st, 2020 to September 21st, as I taped today here in 2022, the Nationals have the second worst record in Major League Baseball. 142 wins and 228 losses. Only the Pirates at 135 and 235 have been worse. So they have basically a seven-game cushion for the title of the worst team in the sport over the last nearly three seasons. And because of the 60-game pandemic, it's, it's not quite three full years. But you're talking about 370 baseball games. The Nats have won only 38% of them. I mean, teams like uh, the the best team in that time, obviously, is the Dodgers, which is basically the inverse kind of of the Nationals. I mean, they've won 68 percent of their games during that time. But clubs like the Rangers, the Diamondbacks, you know, the Orioles have far surpassed them now with their good season. But the Tigers, the Marlins, the Royals, the Rockies, you know, the Cubs, these teams that have been bad for a couple of years. I mean, it's not even close. They've won 25, 30 more games, some of them, than the Nationals. So, I guess I wanted to bring that up just to say a couple of things. You know, if you hear this narrative, if you hear this being mentioned by people about, oh, well, it's year one of the rebuild, or, you know, the Nationals fans are dealing with them uh, being really bad for the first time here, correct them and say, "No, no, 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 listen up. We've been with this team through the 2020 disaster through the 2021 shambles of a season that that was, and now 2022. You guys are in year three of dealing with this. You deserve a pat on the back. You deserve a little love. Because I don't think you're getting enough credit for some of the patience you've already shown here. Right? I mean, in 2019, the World Series is going to buy you some leeway if you're the learners and, and the front office. I totally get that. And that flag will fly forever. And I remember being at the parade, and I had a really... You know, unique opportunity obviously being in the media and being a part of the flagship station where I was on the field doing interviews after games for Charlie and Dave's radio broadcasts and I ran out of the tunnel and onto the field as the team was mobbing each other in the infield in Houston. You know, I was five feet away from the dog pile, right? Some some memories I'll never have. And that will buy some Patience, to be honest. That will buy some willingness for me to kind of sit back and allow for them to try to get this right again. But I just don't want this idea to continue to circulate. And you guys can let me know if you have heard this. But the, the idea is like, well, the Nationals fell off and now they're bad. It's like, well, for you as a fan have dealt for three years now with one of the worst, quite literally, only the Pirates' worse. Products in the sport. And so, like, it, the whole three more years thing, that's too long for me. It's been three years. It's why they need to be more aggressive faster, I guess, is my bigger picture point. This offseason is going to be, uh, you know, hard to peg and project because when does the new owner take over? I guess the first question should be before I even get there is there a new owner that's going to take over? I mean, I, I haven't heard many people talk about this, but and I think this is probably unlikely, but we're all just kind of assuming that this sale's going to happen by the end of the year. I mean, is there any chance that the learners don't get whatever they want and they just keep this thing, which might be the worst case scenario at this point based on some of the you know, speculation you see out there and some of the people I talk to who think, you know while Mark Lerner is still a big fan, that maybe other members of the family have checked out or aren't as interested. So I guess, number one, are they going to sell on the timeline that we are expecting? It's not a foregone conclusion, right? It's not a formality. I mean, it still has to happen. But let's just assume that your Barrys ferluga of the post types are right and that the timeline is that they're going to try to get this thing sold by the end of this calendar year. When does the new owner take over? How much offseason is left? And what is their initial plan? I mean, do they want to throw money at some problems here and come in and try to invest in this thing right away? Or are they going to largely sit out that first few months, right, because they're just starting to take over? They're brand new to this thing. They want to see what works within the organization and what doesn't. I mean, if I was buying, you know, a billion plus dollar entity, I might do a lot of, Sitting, watching, researching, hire some smart people to tell me what's good and what isn't before I start making all my own changes. So maybe this is not the off season where they make a push. And with where their best prospects are, you know, James Wood and A-Ball and Jarland Susana and A-Ball. Cavalli is obviously close, but with the setback of Henry and, and Hassel probably not getting to the big leagues until the second half of next year, I mean, it might stand to reason that you have one more year where you can wait. But I guess my point is they shouldn't wait. And do that again in in the offseason after. Like, how much can they ask of you guys to keep paying the big prices, to go to the games, to keep tuning in with all the other options you have? You know, there's great programming on Apple TV. (laughs) There's really good programming on HBO Max and Netflix. I mean, you got options, right? So at some point, they got to hit the NOS button here. And really start trying to build a winner. I was tweeting about this yesterday at Grant H. Paulson on Twitter. So as I taped Wednesday, this was going back to Tuesday if you want to go check it out. But look, it's not a conclusion that if you just have a big payroll and you spend a lot of money, your team is good. But it gives you a much better chance to be good. Eight of the top ten teams by luxury tax payroll this year in baseball are in playoff position entering Tuesday, according to data provided by Major League Baseball to Axios. The current playoff teams and where their payroll ranks right now, the Mets have the highest payroll in the sport. The Dodgers have the second highest payroll. I'm just going in the NL standings right now in the Nats League. So the number one team, number one in the sport and payroll. The number two team, number two in the sport and payroll. The Phillies, number four in the sport and payroll. The Padres, number six in the sport and payroll. The Braves, number eight in the sport and payroll. And the Cardinals, number 15 in the sport and payroll. So all in the top half. Meanwhile, in the American League, the Yankees, third in payroll. The Astros, ninth in payroll. The Blue Jays, 10th in payroll. And then in the American League, you do have some analytically-minded teams that don't have huge payrolls. The Mariners, 21st. The Rays, 23rd. The Guardians, 27th. But half of the American League field is in the top 10. And all but the Cardinals in the NL fields in the top 10. And the point is... Again, eight of the top ten teams by luxury tax payroll, so I just gave you their rankings and overall payroll, are in playoff position entering Tuesday. The Mets, who clinched this week, are on track to have Major League Baseball's highest payroll for the first time since 1989. Back then, it was only $21 And I'm getting some of these numbers from an Axios piece that I read. They are one of a record-tying six teams that has... Decided that they're going to pay the luxury tax this year. So, of the teams that are willing to pay the luxury tax, the Mets at 298.8 mil, 29.9 million in tax, they're going to have Steve Cohen just stroke a check and pay 30 million bucks. They win a World Series. Is that worth it or not? You tell me. I think it is. The Dodgers, 290 million, 29.4 million in a penalty, if you will, in a luxury tax payment. How's that working out for them? I just told you, the Dodgers have the best record in the sport with 252 wins, 30 more than anybody else since the start of the 2019 season. The Yankees, $267 Aaron Judge just hit his 60th home run to tie Babe Ruth last night. They're headed to the postseason. They're packing their ballpark. They're paying a $9 million tax. Phillies, $243.1 million, paying a $2.6 million tax. The Red Sox are the one team here that paid a lot of money and will pay a tax and will have nothing to show for it because they were a debacle this year last in the American League East, $234.5 million, $900,000 tax, and then the Padres at 232.8 mil are going to make the playoffs. They're going to pay an $800,000 tax. So what is the moral of the story here? What am I getting at? Well, some of you are already ahead of me. Aggressiveness helps. Spending is a necessity. If you want to not spend, you can win Cleveland, Tampa Bay. You have to be smarter and more analytically minded and just sharper than everybody else. And this team, while they have tried to gain ground in those areas, and I will hope that the new owner is going to spend more and more money to do that, is nowhere near being in position to just basically calculator their way to the postseason like Tampa Bay does. So you better spend the way that they operate here. The luxury tax is designed to prevent the big market teams from far outspending the little market teams. That's the whole point, because there's no salary cap. So owners can spend as much as they want on players, but you get penalized for doing that, and those penalties start to balloon, as Axios puts it, at $230 million. So there's four thresholds, just so that you guys know how this works. Uh, I always hear people talking about The luxury tax, but I don't always hear it broken down or talked about in a way that is kind of educational. So many of you may already know this, but the luxury tax has four thresholds, 230 mil, 250 mil, 270 mil, and 290 mil. Teams are taxed at increasing rates for every dollar that they spend over those thresholds. Repeat offenders, so this year that's the Dodgers and the Padres are taxed higher. Meaning if year over year you keep blowing past the threshold that they set up so that you don't overspend, no one's going to stop you. You're just going to pay a ton of money basically for doing that. So if you get an owner, if the Nats get an owner, their own Steve Cohen type who comes in here and just doesn't care about the money, he's not running this thing as a business to make cash like a coffee shop. Rather, he wants to just stack titles and try to you know, this is what he's spending his money on. And some people blow their money on cars. Some people blow their money, like me, on going out to eat. You know, maybe this owner wants to blow their money on a team and, and just buying players that he likes or she likes. Mets owner Steve Cohen came in and wanted to spend money to build a winner. So he spent $290 million. His team surpassed the $290 million threshold which is now kind of the first time we've seen this. It's the Cohen tax is, is what it's being called. And the luxury tax payroll, which is different than the overall payroll, basically, it's calculated by combining the contracts of every player on the 40-man roster plus about $16 million for benefits and $1.67 million for each team's share of a new $50 million bonus pool for pre-arbitration players. And again, shout out to Axios for some of the breakdown on, on how that number went in a newsletter this week. I saw that, but so that's kind of how it works. And I, 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 what I'm hoping for is an owner that's willing to to spend big to pay those luxury tax freights, because I think that that is. The best way to compete. I'm not sitting here telling you it's a sure thing, right? You can have a huge payroll, Boston, and lose. You know, the Yankees, year in and year out, have one of the higher payrolls, generally speaking, in the sport. They haven't won a World Series since 09, and pretty sure that's their only one in the 2000s, right? Since since the turn of the millennium. Um, I get that it's not an automatic. It's hard to win. There's no automatics, but I do think you can help yourself to make sure that you're competitive if you're just actively trying real hard by bringing in great players. But I just thought those numbers, I mean, on the on the records, are, are just so revealing, right? And how about the race? You know, Houston is a top 10 spending team, and the Dodgers are number one, number two, depending on the year. The Mets have surpassed them, it sounds like, but they're normally right there at the top. The best three records in baseball over the last 370 games dating back to the start of that pandemic season. The Rays are right there, best in the American League. And they do it without really spending. But it just speaks to how brilliant they are in that front office. Really, really impressive. All right, let's talk Nats for a second. Last couple of weeks of baseball here, over the last 15 days, couple of guys i wanted to call attention to luke Voit has stayed hot he has three homers and he has a 1030 ops over the last two weeks for the nationals he is the only regular who's got an ops uh, over 900 on the team over the last couple weeks alex call has also been really good he's played 11 games in that time three home runs and eight rbi has an 870 ops second to luke Voigt on the squad uh joy manessis good to see have a four hit game the other night he had you know, by his standards, been slumping just a little bit, had cooled off before that four hit game. Now he's sitting at 326 with his average and 906 with his OPS as we close in on 200 at bats. We're closing in on basically a third of a year of Joey Manessis in the big leagues, and Joey Manessis is hitting still over 325. There's nothing I can say today on this podcast that we haven't already said. I mean there's nothing to add to this story that you guys who watch this team day in and day out don't already know, but hats off to him. What a story and what a you know what a great shot in the arm this was for those of us that are still watching all these games and still care about this team. You needed something like this to help us get to the finish line a little bit, right? Uh, you needed, you know, Luke Voigt to hit, which he has. Uh, he's three sixty-two average in his last 12 games with that ten thirty ops. Just to give you something fresh, something fun to, to root for. I mean, he's 8 for his last 24 at the plate with a couple of bolts this week. Uh, so it's been fun to watch Luke Voigt in that regard. But, man, oh, man, uh, Joey Manassas. Look, he's, he's going to be in the mix now come spring training. Whatever you do this offseason, that guy should be on this roster. You know, he should have an invite to camp, and he should get to compete for at-bats one way or the other. Uh, Nelson Cruz is dealing with eye inflammation right now. Whether or not we see him uh, again in the next couple of days, I'm not sure. But he is unlikely to be here based on his age and signing the, the one-year deal that he did. You know, don't bring him back. If you want to shop Luke Voigt, you might be able to get something for him, and then maybe Manessis could be your DH. Because I'm convinced that he can hit. He has hit in AAA consistently. He had a huge year for the Phillies in AAA and didn't get a chance in the majors a few years ago. Then he left and went and played Mexico before coming back and having an awesome season in AAA this year. But if you add up his you know, his numbers in the minors to the majors, I mean, now you really got a fun stat line for him this season. But I just don't think he can play the field particularly well. And there's no harm in that for the record. Uh, you know, it's why he hasn't been much of a prospect, but like combine his numbers this season and you've got 29 home runs and about 90 runs batted in and an OPS now creeping up toward 900 overall, just amazing. So he should absolutely be given a chance to compete. You know, you want to try to build the closest thing you can to a meritocracy and you can't have him play the way he has down the stretch and, you know, not give him an opportunity to get some A-Bs uh, into next season. Victor Robles, last six games he's played, 5-for-17 at the plate with a home run, a 294 average. Now, what they do with Victor Robles this offseason I think is going to be really interesting. Um, because I'm kind of over the whole Robles thing. Uh, too many outs on base. Too many mistakes throwing to the wrong guy. I think his baseball IQ is very low. Uh, I love the athlete, and I have I was so high on Robles for so long, and I'm just not anymore. At uh, 25 years old, it's not personal, right? But at 591 OPS, like I've seen enough, and it kind of feels, to be honest, like they've seen enough too, because he's not playing every day on a horrendous team that loses 70% of the time. And I think that kind of tells you everything you need to know. You know, if you're looking at Robles's future here, he's ARB eligible a couple of more times. He's not set to hit free agency until 2025. And so they could keep him around here still and may well do that. I mean, I saw kind of the first story written now about next season on MLB.com where it was kind of the same old, You know, the Nats are hoping Patrick Corbin and Victor Robles can turn their careers around next year. And we've done that act, haven't we? I mean, I'm not trying to be flipping or a jerk or mean or anything. But Patrick Corbin is who Patrick Corbin is, and Victor Robles is who Victor Robles is. Fool me once, you know, fool me twice, fool me three times, you struck me out. I don't know the saying. But I played that game a couple years ago after 2020 with Patrick Corbin. Oh, it was the pandemic, and he didn't have a normal spring training, and it was just a weird year, and I'll dismiss it. And then last year happened, and then at the end of last year, he had a good September. You know, finished pretty strong, and then we we did the act again. We did the whole routine. The the, the you know I I uh, bit the hook, and they said, oh well, guess what? He uh you know he finished strong, and he figured something out, and he tweaked this, and it's going to be a different Patrick Corbin. I'm not playing that game again, and I, I feel the same way about Victor Robles. Now Corbin's not going anywhere. He's going to be here. He's under contract. They can't get out of the deal. No one's going to take on that contract. But Robles, you could flip. You know, you could move on from pretty easily. There are teams all over the sport that would probably enjoy adding a gold glove caliber center fielder who can steal some bases, speed and defense guy. And there's also enough track record where he performed in the minors and was a high enough regarded prospect where I guarantee you there's going to be some teams out there, maybe it's analytical or otherwise, who decide, you know, we can fix him or we can tweak the swing. And who knows? Maybe maybe they're able to. I certainly hope that's the case. I don't root against Victor Robles. But I am ready to move on and kind of end that charade at this point. Because the problem is it, it seems like you know, if they were to keep him next year as just their fourth or, you know, spare uh, outfielder who comes off the bench to play defense and run, it does, It just seems like there's always like the inclination that maybe he can do more or they need to play him more, give him more opportunities. And also because at one point in time he was an everyday guy on a World Series team, I, you know, it seems like maybe there's more of a hunger or an interest in – In just you know trying to squeeze more toothpaste out of that tube, or you're chasing a ghost of a couple of years ago. And it's also, you can find a guy that does what Victor Robles does, just a different guy that doesn't essentially remind you of what he should have been and what he could have been, which might actually just be healthier for everybody involved at this point. Now, on Corbin, he left his start yesterday with back spasms. So if you're keeping... Score at home, and this is not Corbin's fault. Obviously, it's an injury, but this was the third time in the span of fewer than 10 starts where he didn't get out of the first inning. The first two just based on ineffectiveness. The, the problem with that, obviously, is that it completely destroys your bullpen. And when you have a rotation made up right now of guys like Paolo Espino, who was a reliever this year, or Corey Abbott, who was a reliever this year. Those guys don't go deep. They go four or five innings at a time. So you're you're talking about just completely destroying the bullpen. There's nothing Corbin could have done about it yesterday against the Braves on Tuesday. He had back spasms and the back tightened up, and they had to get him off the mound. I, I will be interested to see if he pitches again this year. I would not pitch him again this season. I don't know what the point of that would be. There are 13 games left. Uh, So I would shut him down for a week or so and see how he's feeling. And at that point, you got a week of the season left and you can just get by with, you know, whatever healthy arms you got, kind of bullpenning it till the end of the year in a a lost campaign. But if this is the end of the road for Corbin for 2022, 30 starts, a 6.08 earned run average and a 1.66 whip for Patrick Corbin. Now. Prepare yourself for the narrative that the team will push, which is going to be how much better he was in September. Which is true. 3.10 ERA over four starts, 20 innings and just seven runs. But he only struck out 12. He was not missing any bats. He was kind of pitching to contact. The good news was he wasn't really walking anybody. But the average against was still 260, which is too high. Uh, it's better than 330 in August or 370 in July, which is insanity, or 303 in June or 304 in May. I mean, 260 is, you know, kind of like what a back of the rotation arm might allow, and that allowed, you know, that's what he did. That that allowed you to to continue to pitch him. Um, before the All Star break, his ERA was 5.8. After the All Star break, it was 6.5, and the reason for that was he just got rocked in those one inning outings where. Uh, They just had to remove him from the rotation. So imagine what it would have looked like without the really good September. Um, But, again, they said last year that he had figured it out in September and that it would carry over. I am always—this is not a Corbin point. This is certainly related to Corbin right now. But I'm always hesitant, and I would tell people to always proceed with caution when evaluating player performance in September. It is not quite as deceiving as spring training obviously. These are real games and you are taking on real big leaguers. However, every team has kind of a different thing going on in September. Um meaning there are teams that are playing a lot of young guys like the Nats as an example. Like think about their lineup right now that that a pitcher might face. You know the Braves call someone up today to shove against them and and you're pitching against like you know, even though he's been pretty good, Ildemaro Vargas and Alex Call and uh, Tres Barrera, you know, that's, that's a third of your lineup. Well, that's not the same as if you pitched against this team in May with Josh Bell and Juan Soto and Nelson Cruz before his season fell apart, right? And I guess my point is, September, rosters expand, young guys get more opportunities. There is a developmental element for some teams to these games. There's also, I I believe this, maybe some players would laugh at this, but, I mean, depending on, like, where you're at in the standings, how much of a cushion you have, there might be games where it's a getaway day and and we're ready to get on the bus, so, you know, you take three pitches, we're fine in you, or whatever. Uh, It just, it's different Evaluating this month and the other months. And so I, I try not to get fooled by September. And, and that could be the same way with a call up, by the way. If, if a guy gets called up, you know, September 1st and they hit 327 or something, I, I, that doesn't mean they would have done that in May or June. Um, but look, you, you got whatever information you can get your hands on, you, you got to use. And and so you, you don't dismiss it completely or you don't say that Patrick Corbin didn't make some strides because he clearly did. Also, he, he did some things that I would have thought would have backfired. Like, I wouldn't have thought made any sense. I mean, his best pitch is his slider and his fastball is not particularly helpful generally. And then he started leaning more on on throwing fastballs in the strike zone, which I would have said would have been a debacle. But It uh, worked out for him for a few starts. But we'll see what they decide to do with the back spasms for Patrick Corbin. Long gone! On the injury front really quickly, Mackenzie Gore made another rehab start. Mackenzie Gore is probably going to pitch, I would think. I mean, we haven't heard anything definitive yet on a, a plan or a date. You know, we knew that they wanted to dangle the idea of possibly being able to... Start a big league game in front of Mackenzie Gore just to make sure that he worked his butt off. And he he clearly did that. Um, But he did make another rehab start. And so it looks like he's in line possibly if they decide to let him to pitch one time in in the major leagues before the end of the season. Just to give you some specifics, uh, he's going to pitch one more time at AAA through a bullpen session on Monday. Um, So that start in AAA is coming up later this week. This will be his third rehab start. In fact, I guess it's today. I think it's supposed to be um, tonight in Rochester, so we'll have to let you know how he does. But in his second rehab outing, which was going back almost a week ago, late last week, the uh, 23-year-old lefty threw 2.2 innings, 2 and 2 thirds, 4 hits, 2 walks, and 2 strikeouts. Um, Martinez said it was good after the game, said he felt good, and said he'd be ready to go on Wednesday for the the next start that they planned. So let's just kind of figure this out because I think this is a fun storyline. So if he pitches on Wednesday in AAA, that means he would be in line to throw again early next week at the major league level. So that would allow him, I would think, to pitch, if they wanted to allow him, The final series of the season against the Mets, probably. Um, Let's see. And he could pitch before that, too. But if he throws tonight, he'd be able to pitch as soon as Monday or Tuesday next week against the Braves. So if they chose to push him or, or to just have him stay on that five days rest... He could throw against the Braves and then get two starts in at the major league level. Maybe you have him pitch against Atlanta on Tuesday the 27th, You know Wednesday the 28th, and then he would make one start against either the Phillies or the Mets before it's all set and done. You could watch him twice, which would be, look, if you're a Nats fan, getting to see Mackenzie Gore after the trade would be a big highlight to the stretch run of the season. Uh, One other note on the pod today I wanted to pass along. Angels catcher Kurt Suzuki is set to retire at the end of the season after a 16-year big league career. Kurt Suzuki said last night that he plans to retire. Quote, I feel like it's time. I've had a great run, won a World Series, All-Star game, played 16 seasons. I've accomplished a lot of things I never would have dreamed of. Felt like it's time for the next chapter. My three kids, all they've known is baseball, end quote. Where'd he win that World Series? Anybody remember? Suzuki, second season with the Angels. He's hitting only 180 this year with four home runs in about 50 games. Has not played since August 28th. Uh, Was on the bereavement list. Angels are trying to bring him back kind of slowly and get him back up to speed. But Nats, Twins, Braves. among other organizations, the 2019 World Series champion. I think I have two big-time memories of Suzuki uh, from—I mean, I have a lot more than that, but two that particularly stand out from 19. The first was that Mets comeback game, if you remember, when the Nationals had a legendary ninth-inning comeback. I call it the You Blew It game because Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler had this amazing radio call where they said if you left the game when the Nats were down 9-3 to or whatever the game was, uh, you blew it. They came all the way back to win, and Suzuki hit a bomb to left. It was one of the craziest games I've ever watched, probably the most excited, the most fun I've ever had watching a regular season game for the Nationals, to be honest. Um, And Suzuki was right in the middle of it. But then on the World Series run, he hit a home run, a solo shot down the left field line. It was a huge home run. Uh, in Houston, in one of those World Series games that I will uh, not forget. And he had some big swings, some big hits for them. The, the tandem of him and Jan Gomes was really, really good uh, for in that World Series season for the Nationals. So congratulations to Kurt Suzuki on a hell of a career. Sounds like he will be stepping away at the end of the season. And forever, we are indebted to him and the rest of those 19 Nats for the World Series they brought this town. All right, this has been Bustin' Loose Baseball. Again, Danny's in Texas, so he told me to kick rocks today. Daris making everything sound good. I appreciate him. We're going to be back doing this again real soon. Make sure that you subscribe to the feed so that anytime we drop a new podcast, you get it. We try to get you guys two pods at least every single week uh, here on Boston Loose Baseball. Until we meet again, enjoy Nationals Baseball. Please subscribe and rate and review and say something nice. We will read your comment about the podcast and give you a shout-out if you say something nice about us uh, because uh, we're desperate. And we have no shame. So please say something nice. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon on Bustin' Loose Baseball.